It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot, rebound, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How was your Tuesday? Hope you enjoyed the long weekend, assuming you got one. We're going to make your day better. We're going to make your week better. That's what we do. It is Scott Rintoul. It is Jamie Dodd in all week long. And we want you along with us. 960-960-650-650. Get involved throughout the course of the day. Jamie, you don't have to worry about this quite yet. It is back to school day for a lot of people. Yes, and uh, I guess congratulations to parents, condolences to those who are themselves headed back to school. I guess that's that's what's in order, although I know it's emotional for a lot of parents as well, but not something I have to think about just yet. Yeah, there is a little bit of both because I've got a daughter going into grade three. My youngest goes into kindergarten. I just jumped out of the Volvo. The part of working remotely is that I'm able to take them to their first day. So I drove them up there. I dropped them off. The little one's off. So not quite empty nesting, but it's the the first <laughs> the first taste of it, of course, during the day. So the little one's off to kindergarten. That's a bit of the tear in the eye. Ah, the other one, she's in grade three. It's all good. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun deal. times. It's fun times, but of course, the streets are packed. People are scrambling. Be careful out there on the roads. Sit back, relax. We're going to take care of you if you happen to be listening in your vehicle today. Jamie, the kids are actually going to form the basis of the program today when you think about it. With everything that was happening last night, and Bianca's 21, she doesn't feel like a kid, but she's pretty young. And everything going on with Felix and Layla, everything involved with Tennis Canada and our young soccer team that impressed on the weekend. And why don't we start with a young man who has now changed borders or at least crossed the border for his new team. Jesperi Kakinemi is not Canadian, but he played for the Canadiens. We all wondered. It felt like this was going to happen the longer the week went on, and if you predicted he was going to end up a Carolina Hurricane and Montreal would not match, turns out you're correct. And I think ultimately this was the correct decision by Mark Bergevin and company in Montreal to accept the compensa- compensation to let Kakanyemi go to the Carolina Hurricanes. I- I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision, but as many of us from the outside kind of did the analysis, it seemed like the least bad option. Maybe it's not something you're excited about. Maybe it's not something you feel great about doing, but it's better than the alternative. They only had two choices here, and I think they made the right one. They're banking on him not hitting the offensive upside. The Carolina yep. is really is what they're banking on here because in the here and now, quite frankly, Montreal is better. Montreal is better positioned to be back in the playoffs with Christian Dvorak playing center for them this year than they are with Jesperi Kokinemi, who, by the way, is going to start on the wing in Carolina. And I heard Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman talking about this on the weekend on the podcast saying, you know, I wonder if Montreal, if it could go back in time, wishes that it had started cooking Yemi out there. It's so hard to break into the National Hockey League playing center. They went down that road repeatedly. Maybe if they'd put him on the wall, this would have worked out better. Yeah, that's an interesting question. But I, I also have the thought, you know, we also know how much more centers are valued than wingers around the NHL, right? And if, yes, Barry Kakanyemi is a winger instead of a center long term, well, then you're really not excited about paying him $6.1 million this year and what that might do for his value and what you have to pay him down the road. I understand it from the Hurricanes' perspective. If they think that's where he's better suited and he can still provide the value, they're going to be paying him there. That's fine. But 
again, from Montreal's perspective, that's just something else that kind of would have chipped away at the player's value. It's it's so much more important to have that depth down the middle. Yeah, you don't want to ruin a player because of it, but I also understand why teams are very reluctant to move guys that they think can handle it there to the wing. Well, we can ask Eric Tolsky later in the program. He's going to join us during the third hour today. He's the assistant general manager in Carolina. He is the analytics guru. He has his fingerprints all over this move. What they see in the player, why they decided this was the guy that you go offer sheet on, and they have a successful offer sheet, which doesn't happen often. I get the sense they're going to put him on the wing, Jamie, but ultimately they see him as a center, which is part of the reason they went out and targeted this player. It is difficult to acquire center depth in the National Hockey League. They happen to have it right now in Carolina. They've got Ajo on their top line. They went and got Trocek in the last couple of years. Jordan Stahl, I think we can all agree, is a fine third-line center at this point in his career. And they have Derek Stepan on their fourth line. So they're fine down the middle. They don't need to force him there if they believe that there is growth to be made on the wing and eventually move him back into the middle. Yeah, it just always worries me a little bit, though, Scotty, right? We hear this a lot, right? Okay, we're going to we're gonna break this guy in easily on the wing, and then eventually we'll get him back down the middle. It doesn't always happen, right? It reminds me a little bit of when... In baseball, a team calls up, uh, you know, a hot starting pitcher and says, you know what, you know what, we're going to use him out of the bullpen to start. Then, then don't worry, we'll stretch him out and we'll, we'll make him a starter again. Sometimes it happens, but sometimes you just end up leaving the guy there in the bullpen. And that's a little bit how I feel with young players making the move from center to the wing. Doesn't mean it won't go successfully and that he won't be able to move back down the middle at some point, but it just concerns me a little bit when teams choose to go that route. There are a couple more elements to this, obviously, because we just don't see this very often. And as hockey fans on the outside, we love this. If you're not a Habs fan, you love this over the course of the weekend. Probably feels different if it's your team and there's been fear, particularly in a place like Vancouver this summer. Ooh, might there be an offer sheet out there? We can address that in a second because I think that still lingers in the background, but there's a lot of reason to believe that it won't happen with Elias Pedersen. I think an under part, or underrated part of this deal for Montreal because Montreal has to pay a little bit more to get Dvorak. Montreal gets a first and a third back from Carolina, and there's a stipulation on that. It's top 10 protected to a certain degree. But then they pay a second and a first to get Christian Dvorak. I think there were some scratching their heads saying, well, why would they have to pay more? The player is older, potentially doesn't have the same offensive upside. Well, the reason is this, Jamie, cost control. And cost control, we have seen over the last three years specifically, and maybe beyond that with some organizations that were ahead of the curve, cost control is a valuable asset to have. Christian Dvorak might not be a high-end number two center as far as offensive production goes, but he is $4.5 million, and that's over the next number of years. We saw a premium paid to get JT Miller's contract when Vancouver made the deal with Tampa Bay. We saw Tampa Bay go get a couple of guys in Gaudreau and Coleman that they paid more for because they were cost-controlled players. If you're not thinking that way as a general manager right now, you're doing it wrong. And really, you're, you're exactly right, Scotty. What Christian Dvorak has on his contract is what they call surplus value, right? So he has four years at about 4.5 left. If he had been a UFA this summer, right, as a 25-year-old second-line center with a little bit of offensive pop, what kind of deal would he, would he have got? It would have been a lot more than 4 by 4.5, right? So that deal is a bargain. And maybe you're not that excited about the player. Maybe you have questions about his upside. But again, on the open market, he would have gotten a lot more, whether it's term, dollars, comp, some combination of the two. So that deal is a bargain. That's why they have to pay a premium for him. You're right. It's about cost control. And... 
that's what they have with Christian Dvorak. That's what they would have lost with Jesperi Kakanyemi if they had kept him, right? Because all of a sudden, that one year, six million dollar, six plus million dollar deal, that one is extremely expensive this year. And it completely takes the cost control element out of your hands in the four because it makes signing him to an extension or signing him to further one-year deals so complicated and potentially so expensive. So they lose a player, but all of a sudden they would not have had cost control over and they gain one that they have to a bargain deal for many years down the road. We brought Tyson Nash onto this program last week in large part because of Christian Dvorak. Hey, let's talk a little bit more about the player. He's rumored to be going to Montreal or at least the Habs are interested. That's how Mark Bergevin spent his week, checking out his center options. By the sounds of things, he kicked tires everywhere, considered a whole lot. This is the player they settled on in Montreal, and Bergevin said this player in particular, of course he's going to say this, this player in particular is the one that made it easier to stomach the loss of Isperi Kakanyemi. Yeah, and that's it's no surprise. I mean, as you said, we talked to Tyson Nash about it. You'd heard the rumblings around the league. And just looking at Montreal's depth chart, it was obvious they were going to have to do something because otherwise their center depth just would have been so thin without Kakanyemi. They were going to have to turn around and do something immediately. And with the situation in Arizona, with the all of the reasons we're laying out why Dvorak is an attractive player, I'm not surprised that they got the deal done. Well, here's Bergevin talking about it on the weekend. Well, that's not the only one, but you know, this the amount of money on a one-year deal for a player sh- who should be making a lot less. It's it was could affect our future. We have a structure, our, our salary cap that we need to work with. We have some young players coming through uh, that we want to keep. So uh, it put us in a situation where we had to make a decision what was best for our team now and moving forward. And being able to. Uh, acquire uh, Devo, Christian Dvorak, made our decision easier. I'm pretty interested to see what the extension looks like come January or February, or maybe they wait a little longer, Jamie, but it sure feels like Carolina has something waiting for Jesperi Kakanyemi that goes far beyond this one-year deal that they've inked him to. I mean, that's certainly what the speculation is. You would think there's been talk about that between the two parties on, you know, the legalities of that. I'll, I'll leave that for somebody else to decide. I, I do think it's interesting from Carolina's perspective, though, because it's all great to sit here in, you know, late August or September and kind of come to a framework uh, for a long-term extension with this player. But, you know, he's going to play a bunch of games for you between now and when he's eligible to sign that extension. And if the performance goes one way or another for Jesperi Kakanyemi, all of a sudden, that could frustrate the potential of doing a long-term deal, or at least doing the long-term deal that you wanted to do in the first place. So I think, you know, we're all we're, we're focusing on this from Montreal's perspective, but I think there's a lot of risk here for Carolina as well. Is there? Is there? Because we've got a 21-year-old player, and we can all debate what his upside is here, but as we have talked about, you can sign a player to whatever you want. Term, money, it doesn't matter, Jamie, as long as the contract's portable. Carolina has done a very good job of having portable contracts. They don't get stuck with an albatross on their books. No, they don't, but they have the potential to get stuck, potentially, with an albatross on their books. Or at the least, if you don't want to say an albatross, potentially a, a contract that is not portable, right? If if they you know, if Jesper, if they do sign Jesperi Kakanyemi to a, a long-term extension of some sort, I know it won't be a massive long-term extension, but if they do do that and his development doesn't take a significant uptick, in Carolina, I don't think that player is going to have a lot of value around the league. I think that would be a difficult contract to move. 
they clearly value the player as much as we like the spicy aspect of, hey, well, they were waiting because of Sebastian Ajo, and they were waiting for this day, and the way they worked the numbers into the signing bonus and, and tacking on a little bit extra to the contract just to throw the jersey numbers in there. Don Waddell, general manager down in Carolina, said, nah, this wasn't about revenge. Certainly was not revenge. We talked about this player. We know this player. You have an opportunity to get uh, you know, we use the CBA as other teams have in the past to s- try to acquire a 21 year old player. So, you know, to us, it was uh, all about the player. You know, we looked around the league and, you know, thought this made the most sense from where we are in our team. As you know, we have a couple other uh, good finished players on our team and thought this would be a great fit. So, you know, the release, you know, that, that that's a marketing thing that, you know, we're trying to, to continue to build our franchise here in Raleigh, trying to keep our fans engaged. Uh, our social team gets huge marks uh, from the NHL, and, you know, they they had some fun with it. Yeah, they did. And from the outside, we all love it, and you probably hate it a little bit if you're a Habs fan, but it's a lot of fun. Now, could we see more offer sheets? That's the question on everybody's mind. All right, one finally worked out. It never happens in the NHL. This one did. Is this a template for more to come? Could they come as soon as this month? We've heard a couple of names out there. Jamie Brady Kachuk in Ottawa. They've got a ton of cap space. You and I discussed this at length last week, but... Does the owner actually want to pay a whole bunch of money when it comes to Brady Kachuk? The other name that's been out there is Elias Pettersson. People wondered, hey, Seattle Kraken, would they do it? Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened yet, but Elias Pettersson remains unsigned, and Vancouver has some tighter financial constraints, obviously. Yeah, I'd still be very, very surprised if Elias Pettersson receives or signs an offer sheet this offseason. I'd be a little surprised if Brady Kachuk does as well. I think there's maybe more potential to do a successful one with Brady Kachuk just because of the financial situation of the owner there. But, you know, really, I think if you're hoping that this is going to kind of unleash a flood of offer sheets in the NHL in the future, I think, if anything, this kind of shows why you don't see more offer sheets attempted in the NHL. Because, again, you know, it's not as if this is an epic home run for Carolina, at least not from my perspective, right? You give up a first and a third. Yeah, you get a guy who's a recent third overall pick, but there's also major questions about his development to this point in the NHL. I understand that they really like the player, but again, you give up pretty significant draft capital. You're paying him over $6 million a year, and then you have to sign him to a long-term extension, right? So I, I don't look at this and say, oh man, they really fleeced Montreal. You know, they put Montreal in a difficult position, but to me, this is more about putting the squeeze on Montreal than scoring a win from a you know player acquisition development for Carolina. Not to completely dump on Jesperi Kakaniemi, but again, there's a lot of you put yourself through a lot of trouble, and the reward is okay. It's nice, but I don't see this really moving the needle for Carolina as a franchise. And I think just this just demonstrates how difficult it is to feel like you really won the offer sheet process. Fins to win. That's what they're going with in Carolina. They've got a lot of finished players in the organization, some already successful. They have drafted more. They believe in, obviously, the development in that country. They believe in these players in particular. Back to Pedersen for a second, because as mentioned, there is not a lot of progress coming out of Vancouver when it comes to getting Quinn Hughes and Elias Pedersen under contract. Pedersen is the only one that is available for an offer sheet if somebody wants to walk down that road, Jamie. However, this is a case where actually might benefit the Canucks a little bit that they're represented by the same agency. Can you see the same agent allowing Elias Pedersen to sign an offer sheet knowing that dries up the money for Quinn Hughes? 
Yeah, it would be tough, right? It would have to be just an incredibly advantageous offer sheet, right? And and again, to kind of you know double back on what I was just saying about Carolina, if you if you make an offer sheet to Elias Pettersson that's really, really difficult or uncomfortable for Vancouver to match, whether it's because of term or dollars, whatever it is, you know, by definition, that's an offer sheet. That's a, that's a contract structure for the player that's probably a little uncomfortable for you as well, right? Plus, you're giving up a huge amount of draft assets to get it. So I and, – and then you factor in what you're bringing up, Scotty, and the fact that they share the same agent. What is truly to gain? Unless you are just miles apart – from the Canucks and negotiations, right? And there's just no common ground and you're not even in the same ballpark yet. I don't really see it being a savvy negotiating strategy by the agents of Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Yeah, I doubt it's coming. And doesn't mean that the contracts are coming anytime soon. There's no pressure point right now. We'll see if something gets done this week or next. But training camp starts later this month for all NHL clubs. And it's likely that they get a lot closer to training camp before we see pen hit paper for Pedersen and Hughes. I want to get to what's going on at the U.S. Open. There's so much from this weekend. We could have hit about five different things here in the opening segment. Did you stay up last night? Are you short on sleep as a result of staying up to watch Bianca? Yeah, a little bit. I did. I don't regret it. It was fun. I'm, you know, a little bit upset about the outcome, obviously, but it was a very entertaining tennis match, no doubt about it. Incredible theater. Just incredible theater. If you're a sports fan, let alone a tennis fan, you were staying up last night. Man, I was hoping Bianca finished that off in the second set, and she had a couple of opportunities, but what a great match. And that's not the result most of us here today having this conversation we're looking for, but the show that Bianca Andreescu and Maria Sakari put on that was sensational, and it was also really tough to watch, Jamie. It is difficult to watch an athlete who's under some form of physical dress go through what Bianca was going through last night, and we all have empathy, and we glorify the athletes who do it. She tried to gut it out last night. That leg just wouldn't allow her to do everything she was capable of in the back half of that third set. I thought the match kind of summed up or encapsulated like the entire Bianca Andreescu experience, really, especially since she won the U.S. Open two years ago, which is you see the talent and you see the upside and what what she can do at her peak. And I mean, early in that match, it looked like she was just going to steamroll through it, right? Like she was just going to roll over into the next round. But then you also see the inconsistency, right? And allowing that first set to go to a tiebreaker before pulling it out, right? Falling behind early in the second set before fighting back. You saw the inconsistency, the pushback, the fight, the battle. And then you saw the injury concerns, right? Which is always, always a topic of conversation with Bianca Andreescu. And it's going to be until she goes for a long time without dealing with them. But it really was the entire kind of gamut of Bianca Andreescu, right? The highs, the lows, the questions, all of it was on display. I don't know how we could turn the energy that was on that court into something that would power vehicles or cities, but that power was incredible to witness last night. Bianca is one of the more powerful players on tour, and Sakari has every bit as much. She is muscular. She is fit. Man, that was a display, and that might have even been part of the story as well, Jamie. If, if Bianca is struggling physically against someone who is less powerful on the women's side of things, maybe... Maybe she finds a way through. I was almost at the point in that third set. Listen, you saw when she left the court, she asked for the trainer, and she left the court. You saw the reaction from Sakara, and I guarantee you, based on what just happened with Sasipas, there were a lot of people out there thinking, okay, is this tactical or is this medical? It was pretty clear when she came back, 
it was legit medical. That leg, whether it was the hamstring or something else within that quad, I have no idea. I think I heard hamstring at some point. It let her down. She was cramping, and she just couldn't quite get the job done. Man, there was a point where... I had kind of mentally conceded she just doesn't have it because Sakari's so powerful. She's not going to be able to overtake her. And they and she kept getting it a little further. And she got it to deuce on her serve there when Sakari's trying to close out the match. There was a part of me watching, like, just let this end mercifully so she doesn't get hurt any worse. Yeah, right. And it's interesting you say about people wondering, okay, is this tactical more than medical? I get that. And in, in that kind of crucial, pivotal moment of a match, I understand why there's going to be questions. But, I mean... You know, it's also Bianca Andreescu. Like, injuries are kind of a fact of life for her. They, they certainly have been over the last couple of years. So, yes, as you said, it turned out, nope, nope, she is legitimately hurt. That was definitely not tactical. It was a decent run. It's the first time she's ever lost at Flushing Meadow. Her first entry a couple years ago obviously resulted in her winning the tournament. Last year, she wasn't able to play because of injury and everything going on with the surrounding circumstances with covid this one ends in part due to injury. It wasn't the whole story. Nothing should be taken away from Sakara here. But, boy, has it been a magical run for Canadians. Jamie, Felix Ojea, Eliasim, Leilani Fernandez, they're both playing today. Yep. They are both in the quarterfinals. It's incredible that we're not just talking about one Canadian, but we're talking about a couple. And Denis Shapovalov losing on the weekend the way he did, it feels like a disappointment. Our expectation and the standard in this country has risen so much. We're spoiled, really, at this point. I mean, we've gone from just wanting to have, you know, one Canadian who was a threat to go deep in the in tournaments like this, in Grand Slams. Now, all of a sudden, we had four putting on really impressive showings this at, at this tournament. And you're right, you know, Chapeau dropping out, it did feel like a disappointment. But more than anything, that just speaks to how high the bar has been raised. And it really is incredible that, you know, Chapeau and Bianca Andreescu can both go out but we still have two more Canadians to cheer on in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, right? Two years ago, who would have thought that? I mean, I know we knew Felix was coming, and some people who are really plugged in knew that Leilani Fernandez was coming. But all of a sudden, to have them all performing like this at once, I mean, really, we're spoiled for choice. We're spoiled for candidates to cheer for right now. Yeah, they will play out throughout the course of the tournament. They've got the men's Medvedev playing right now in one of the quarterfinals. Ogiel Eliasim is in the final quarterfinal, which goes tonight. So who knows how long that gets delayed. Yeah. Like that match with <laughs> Bianca last night got pushed back so far. It was supposed to start around 9 o'clock Eastern time. It didn't end till well after 2 in the morning there because of all the pushback from the sets and the, and the matches that took place before it. Yeah, and that's pretty uh, pretty usual at the U.S. Open. I expect we will see the Felix match get pushed back significantly as well. I doubt Leila Annie Fernandez, and that match is finished by the end of our fourth hour today on the program. We'll keep you updated one way or another. I want to dig into this story, though, as well. And this is what was so great about the sports weekend. And you can get in on any of this, 960, 960, 650, 650. There are about five, maybe six ways we could have started this show today. There are topics a plenty will hit many of them with one of our favorites. First time with the new sports calendar rolling around that we will talk to Carolyn Cameron. She joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dot. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Jake Vertanen has signed with Spartak in Moscow. Yeah, so going to the KHL, that was, uh, I saw f early reports by Rick Dollywall here in Vancouver. It's been officially announced by the team themselves now. Uh, yeah, former Vancouver Canuck Jake Vertanen headed to the KHL with Spartak Moscow on a one-year deal. We'll see what the legal process 
plays out, he's obviously going to try to reclaim his career on the professional side of things, on the personal side of things. That is much more serious. I think we all know that. I have no comment on the legal process at this point in time. It's a serious allegation. It should yeah. be dealt with seriously. And let's see what the investigation and, and resulting legal proceedings, if there are any, turn up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's actually very little we can say. I mean, other than, you know, given all of that and given really his recent results on the ice, not surprising that, at least for this year, his professional path is taking him outside of the NHL. And as you mentioned, it's a one-year deal for right now. We'll see what happens. We'll keep you updated. I don't think anyone from a hockey standpoint is surprised by this, given all of the factors we just mentioned, Jamie. There's no appetite on any NHL roster right now for Jake Vertanen. I don't know what number you'd even have to look at, but with everything going on in his personal life and with the legal situation, no appetite right now around the NHL. No, again, and, and I'm not surprised by that whatsoever, given, as you, as we said, this very, very serious allegations that are still pending, still being investigated, still going through the legal process. Carolyn Cameron's going to join us here momentarily. I've got a lot of tennis questions for her, and we can hit hockey, hopefully. Jamie, I hope we don't run out of time, but she's yeah. got so much insight into tennis. And I think not that tennis has captivated all of Canada. It's just part of the sports smorgasbord that we're, we're consuming right now. And I think people are tuned in. And I saw a lot of people staying up last night to watch Bianca. The story continues today with Felix and Layla, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. But, man, you see what happens with Canada's men's soccer team over the course of the weekend as we're going to talk about. Boy, does a draw feel a little different this time oh, around. Yeah. Man, it, I mean, did, is that what you expected going into the United States? I certainly didn't. That, that was my hope, was a draw. And I know there are... You know, and, and I'm excited. We have Terry Dunfield, who's been calling these matches on, coming on a little later in the show. I'm excited to get his perspective because I know soccer fans south of the border are not pleased at all with how their team has performed early in that qualification process. No, they're not, and that's part of it. We'll get to it. Baseball was just off the charts this weekend, and yes, you and I have a rooting interest because we happen to be Blue Jays fans, but the American League wildcard race is sensational, and some of the theater we saw it there the Dodgers and the Giants going head-to-head in the NL West. It is fun, man. What a way to enter September. And we welcome back to the program for the first time in a while. Carolyn Cameron joins us here. Thank you very much for doing this. How are you on this fine September Tuesday? I'm very well. How are you? I am well. What was at the top of your list this weekend when it came to sports? Was it the tennis? Was it the soccer? There's an offer sheet in hockey. We just mentioned a couple of the other happenings. What ranked number one for you? I know just in the past week, if you think of it, it was actually Brad Fay who tweeted it out. In terms of not being the Olympics, other than the Olympics, I feel like this has been one of the best weeks in terms of cheering for Canadians because it was even less than a week ago that Canada's women won gold at the uh, Women's World. So for me, this weekend, it had to be tennis. It was just just every night, every afternoon, there's a Canadian to watch. There is, and obviously as the tournament goes on, the chances of every one of them progressing remain slimmer and slimmer, and that's where we are right now, and yet two remain going to attempt to battle their way into the semifinals. Both of them will play today. Let's go back to last night. Take me through your emotional journey watching Bianca in that three-set epic match against Sakari. It's pretty kind of typical for Bianca, and I don't mean it in the sense that she was battling against her body. It's just that she is always kind of the story. It's similar to Serena when you're watching her play. Like, it always feels like it's on her racket. And um, 
Zachary is such a physical player. You can even just see it um, looking at her. She's so physically strong and one of the strongest players on tour. So it was just kind of a slugfest, grind it out. And Bianca, it's like, it's always down, but not out. She's the only player I watch that if she's down, especially early on in a match, and we even saw it at the U.S. Open where she'll be broken the very first game of the match. It's the only person I watch where my heart rate doesn't start to climb seeing that. I think, oh, okay, that's fine. She. She's playing her way into it, and then she'll come out on the other end. So a disappointing result. Zachary was the favorite headed in, so I think people should keep that in mind, even though Bianca um, is the defending champion, albeit from two years ago. So all in all, a good tournament for for her, especially considering that at the U.S. Open, at Flushing Meadows, this was the first time since May that she'd won consecutive matches. So she's not at the level that she wants to be at, I know she doesn't like to compare it to 2019 while we all do, but she still wants to be at a higher level than she is now. But I think given what we saw last night, given the fight she had, uh, it's good signs. And now on the flip side, as it's always been over the past two years, it's just hoping that her body and the conditioning sticks with her and helps her out. Well, and if you'd been paying attention to her this year, as I know you have, but I'm talking about our listeners here, you would have known about the great three-set match these two had in Miami just a few months ago. So that kind of set the stage for everything we saw last night. How many players on tour, because Bianca's very powerful, how many players could match the power display that the two of them put on last night? Oh, I don't know. Like, I think of... Serena at her best um, has a ton of power. And then we even saw against Layla, Angelique Kerber, not as much now, but even earlier in her career had a ton of power. But you're right in terms of slugfest and taking the ball early. And that's one of the reasons I think people like watching Bianca. It's not just because she's Canadian, but she plays such a physical game. And you can even see her sometimes on the baseline. She's almost sitting on the court with how low she gets down, how much she uses her uh, her legs. So that's a good point. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a stronger literal matchup than we saw last night. Well, and Caroline, you know, to your point, I think we really saw kind of everything about Bianca that makes her so compelling last night, right? We saw the incredible high-end ability she has and the power and the ceiling when everything's clicking, how good she can look. You know, we saw a little bit of the inconsistency as well, but also the will and the attitude to fight back. And then, unfortunately, you know, another big part of the Bianca story is, of course, her battling uh, her own body too often. But I, I really thought it was kind of a great advertisement for why she is so entertaining and why she is so compelling ironically in a match that she ended up losing yeah and I think too she's also really let us in even from a young age when she won the U.S. Open at 19 but even now she's kind of let us into her own maturation where she's very open about how she needs to improve and where she needs to improve and that isn't just physically or tactically it's really about what her mindset is and I know everyone's heard her speak about the meditation um, and just speaking to her even in the last few weeks and months She's just very open about trying to improve herself mentally. And it's something that when she speaks, I think it's very relatable for everyone, regardless your walk of life or occupation or, or stage in life. It's just about trying to understand your weaknesses or blind spots, understand why they happen and improve upon them. And one of them for Bianca, if we even look back to the Miami Open, when she advanced to the final, was playing Ash Barty and was forced to retire, she broke down in tears. And the tears, as she has since explained, it wasn't just that she had to retire from the final, but it was also the realization that she needs to sometimes stop before she gets ahead of herself. And by that, I mean, it's not just about her body in that match. It's about the understanding that if she wants to play long term, 
she needs to worry about her body for the future. So, so that's something we even can see last night. It's, it's her just kind of understanding because she's such a fighter is yes, you want to fight and yes, you want to win the match and move on to the next one. But it's also understanding what the risk is and how this isn't just about today or tomorrow. It's about the months and years ahead. That's a really fascinating perspective because you're right. One of the things that makes her so, you know, so dangerous as a tennis player is that ability to never give up and to always fight through the match. But you're also right that, you know, her health is so important. And I mean, really, is that the only thing holding her back at this point from reaching her ceiling is, is the fight against her, her physical health that seems to be, you know, unfortunately it doesn't seem to, uh, to go away for very long at all when it does go away. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's also just the natural like growth of a player. And here's someone who, if you throw in injury, but also COVID and the strained schedule over the past year, the fact she won a grand slam and had that, all that attention at 19. Now she's trying to live up to that. I, I think it's a lot of, uh, factors um, and she started with a new coach which I think is a good thing so I don't think it's just simply one thing in terms of battling her body I think it's just her growing up as a person and as a professional and yes she won the U.S. Open two years ago and yes she had an incredible 2019 but you can't expect unless honestly it's Novak Djokovic you can't expect those results consistently especially in the women's game right now which is just so competitive and over the course of this year even it's different names that you see in the final week every single slam so I think I would just caution people is I think yeah you can be concerned about Bianca's health and and longevity and that's something that she's dealing with right now and struggling with now but I think she's still at a very high level if I mean if she'd won last night she would have been through to the quarterfinals. Carolyn Cameron joining us here today, talking tennis at the U.S. Open. I want to talk, I'm glad you brought up Djokovic, because I want to talk about the growth of these young players. And we saw Shapo bow out on the weekend, and part of the story with the likes of Djokovic and Federer and Nadal, and tennis in general, when you're at that high level, is that when you can't find your A game, how do you make sure it's not a C game? How do you make sure it's not a D game? And that's what they've done so consistently over the years. And they've found the mental aspect of that. Can you see the worm turning for Bianca and Chapo in that regard? Because with Dennis on the weekend, it was pretty clear he didn't have his A game. And he's still at a point in his career where he's got to figure out how to find that B game that can get him through. Yeah, and we saw that in Toronto, too, when he lost to uh, Francis Tiafo on center court. He just didn't have it all match. And it kind of got away from him quickly. The thing with Shapo that I've noticed, similar to what we're talking about, Bianca, is I've seen kind of a lot of just personal growth and getting to know him and interviewing him and just seeing him in his other interviews over his career. He used to get a little bit more upset when he lost. There'd be some kind of excuses. And now, even seeing after his U.S. Open loss, he, he accepts and uh, acknowledges where he needs to be better. And then he, in turn, says, that's where I still need to get better and grow. And we've seen that from Felix, too. Like, they're still in these early stages, if you think they're just in their early 20s. Like, Felix, who I'm sure we'll talk about, and he's playing tonight against Alcaraz, the 18-year-old Spaniard. I mean, Felix kept hitting walls. He's been in eight ATP finals, and he hasn't won one. He kind of just has been missing that clutch gene, if you will. And then at Wimbledon he finally kind of broke through in that match against Varek, who he never beat. And now look at him as he's looking to advance to the semifinals. So I think for all of them, they're really, they're just on the cusp. It's about just getting a win here or there. And that's where for Bianca, I think the U S open, even though she didn't 
get as far as I think many of us would have hoped. I still see it as a positive tournament considering how the past two years have been for since that big win at Flushing Meadows. And for Shapo, it's the same. He's really right on the cusp at such a young age that I think it really is just a matter of time, even though that's a cliche we hear all the time. Father Time's come calling for Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. Their stories might not have concluded yet, but we can all see where this is headed in the next little while. Djokovic, not so much. He's still there. He looks to take the all-time lead in this particular tournament. But as you talk about Felix and Chapo and Alcaraz, who OJ Eliassime will take on tonight, we're seeing the turnover here. We're seeing this young wave roll through. What in particular lies ahead for Felix OJ Eliassime tonight as he looks to advance to the semifinal? Yeah, this one, it just seems silly that he's the veteran in all of this, considering he just turned 21 years old up against the 18-year-old, one of the big stories similar to Layla at this U.S. Open. And that's the thing. I think it's just a big question mark because we don't know what to expect, similar to Layla in her match this afternoon against Fidelina. Because when you have a young player who is on a run like this, I think they're not even aware of what's going on. And that's what makes them such an X factor. So, Alcaraz moves really well. Felix is, he reminds me of Federer, and he's so different from Chapo because I know we, ha- we make the comparisons, which are easy to compare. He's so structured. He plays such a pretty game. Like, to watch it, it just looks so fluid and nice, but he's not a risk taker. Um, he really sticks to his game plan, uh, just wants to make clean shots, clean points. So I think it would actually will be a really interesting match. I honestly, like if I was a betting woman, I would not know who to bet on. Sure, Felix is the favorite, but Alcaraz has just been so good. I just, I could imagine his streak continuing. Carolyn, I want to ask you about a little bit of Layla Annie Fernandez as well. She's going to play in her quarterfinal match in a couple of hours here. What has clicked for her to let her go on such an impressive run at the U.S. Open this year? Yeah, so this is a player who is always, and I know it might sound silly to say always when she literally just turned 19, (laughs) she's always just been so poised and focused. Like even before the pandemic began, about a month before it was in the then Fed Cup, she was the top seed because Bianca was out and she um, beat Belinda Bencic at the time, the world number five. And, And Layla was ranked well outside the top 100. Uh, you see it just after every single point. Something new I'm seeing is her kind of bringing the crowd into it and getting everyone pumped up. So she's allowing herself to have a little bit more fun on the court. She's a lefty, which is always tricky for opponents to face. Um, even Bianca, when I interviewed earlier this year, ahead of the Billie Jean King Cup, formerly the Fed Cup, she said that she faced Layla in practice a few times in Australia earlier this year. And she said, quote, she whooped my ass. Like she was, <laughs> she doesn't like playing lefties and Layla's very good. So Layla's very poised for her age. Um, tactically, she's very strong and she, she kind of has a short memory. Like if, if something goes wrong, she collects herself and she moves on. And that's what I mean about being poised is a lot of times, especially with age, it's, it's hard for those young players to focus, but Layla really is able to. And then considering her game and the fact that she's a lefty, it just it keeps putting her on top. And, and Caroline, you know, just before we got you on the line, Scotty and I were talking about how incredibly spoiled we feel as Canadian tennis fans, right, with this wealth of talent to follow and root for. And, you know, for the last couple of years, I, so much of the focus has been obviously on Bianca Andreescu, but then also Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime. And I feel like for people who are maybe slightly more casual fans, you know, 
maybe they've heard the name Layla Andy Fernandez, but she hasn't really been on their radar until this week, until this tournament. For those who are just kind of getting to know her a little bit better, what's her ceiling on, on the tour? Oh, it's really high. Like, she could be top 10. And again, this is someone who at 17 is, like, beating um, really good players on the international stage for Fed Cup at the time. Um, so yeah, I think it's a high ceiling. And it's similar to what we saw in Bianca. She has different parts of her game. And Layla hasn't even really grown into herself. Like, she's still pretty small in stature. I think she could still get a lot um, stronger and her conditioning could get even better. So it, it's nice. This really is a coming out party. And I think it's really good things still to come. So whatever happens this afternoon, um, it's already been a huge win for her, especially in the rankings. It's understandable why we're focused on the Canadians in this tournament. And hey, I didn't even talk about Vashik Pospisil and winning the opening round and Rebecca Marino, who despite losing in this tournament in the opening round, is a success story for a bunch of different reasons. Like, there are so many places we can go in Canadian tennis, but we talked about Novak Djokovic, and it does feel at times like we're burying the lead. He has an opportunity to win all four Grand Slams this year. Federer did not do that in the same calendar year. Nadal did not do that in the same calendar year. Win percentage-wise, overall, it's not the greatest season ever. But if he gets the U.S. Open done and he gets the Grand Slam in one year, is it the greatest season of tennis we've seen in our lifetimes? Yeah, I think you could argue that. And then not only that, but then it gives him his 21st Grand Slam, which would then surpass him. Um, surpass Federer and Nadal because they're all tied right now at 20. So I like honestly, and it sounds so obvious, but he's he's the favorite by far. Um, and it's great as we say about all the youth we're seeing right now. I'm still in the tournament, but there's even and I, I forget who I was talking um, to this about a few years ago on tour, but I swear there's kind of a, a mental block for players where. Yes, Djokovic is far and superior to everyone right now on tour, and he has that clutch gene that we spoke about. But I think for players to play him on a big stage, yes, you think they have nothing to lose, but I swear there's a mental hurdle there where it's it's mentally hard to try and beat him, similar to how it was hard to beat Nadal and Federer. And then once the odd person started beating them, then other people had their belief. But I've spoken to players before about that, and they say it is true. So will this be the greatest um, tennis season ever for Djokovic? I think statistically you could say yes. It's not that there have been a ton of memorable matches. And unfortunately, the most memorable matches haven't been against uh, Federer and Nadal, which is always nice for the history books. But I have a feeling he's going to do it and he'll reach 21. And then we'll have the whole discussion of is he the greatest player of all time, which I think we're going to have that discussion forever and there will never be a clear answer depending on who you talk to well i think you're absolutely right about the mental hurdle and because there's so much time and it takes so long to play this out over a in in a grand slam tournament you got to win three of five on the men's side like jensen brooksby last night he wins the first set and you're yeah. you've won the first set against novak Djokovic. but for every player there's got to be this moment where you actually have that sink into your mind holy crap i'm doing something against this person, Federer, Nadal, or in this case, Djokovic, and I'm on the verge of this, and that actually is detrimental probably. Yeah, and that's a good point. Is it's That's why it's hard, even harder at slams, because it's one thing to beat Djokovic in a best of three, right, win two sets, but to win three sets against him, I don't know, like that's, that's hard to do. So even 
Like, even after he won the first set last night, and it was really fun to watch. By the second, then once he gets down a break, already you're kind of thinking, oh, okay, well, that's over. And that's just a crazy mindset to have. I would never think that in any other tennis match um, I'm seeing, but it's it's like the best of the best. If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, and that's Djokovic. She just needs one point here or there to change the entire course of the match. One more quick spin-off with Djokovic as it relates to Canadian tennis because he and Vasek Pospisil have been at the forefront of trying to get a union together and trying to make things a little more equitable for players that are farther down the food chain and who get paid the big dough that some of the top 75, 100 players in the world get. With that in mind and looking at different revenue sources for players, a behind-the-scenes Netflix or other platform series, how do you think it would be welcomed by professional tennis players? Yes, love it. So, yeah, I was talking to my my friends who are fellow tennis nerds about that this weekend. So I need to watch F1 on Netflix because I have not watched it and I've only heard good things. And then I read over the weekend or late last week that ratings for Formula One in the States have gone up 50% in the past year. And so I think the PGA is so smart to sign on for a Netflix series. And as Milo Sharanic tweeted right after that news came out, the ATP needs to do the same. Because right now the ATP is not in a, it's not in a great place marketing wise. Like you've got Federer and Dal are on their way out, right? That you don't even see them play as much. Um, Djokovic is king, but he's also just not the most likable leader compared to Federer and Dal. I'm, I'm speaking generally, of course. Um, and yes, you have these young players, but you need to show more personality in tennis, and you need to get to know these players more, especially when it's an international sport. It's hard for a casual fan to keep tabs on it over the course of the year because of where they're playing, how often they're playing, the time changes, the different types of tournaments. So I think this would be huge if the ATP signed on to do a similar series. I just think it would be fantastic, and I hope it's something they seriously consider. I said to Jamie before the segment, I want to get to hockey with her, but we're probably not going to get to hockey because I have so many questions about tennis. So it was a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. We didn't we didn't get to the offer sheet. We didn't get to the NHL, but there will be plenty of time for that on another day. I'll say similar to how I would love to see a little bit of the drama in a Netflix series um, with the Shambo and golf and then on the ATP. I equally loved the offer sheet because it sprinkles <laughs> in a nice little bit of drama. I like, I like to watch drama. I don't like it in my own life, but I love to watch it unfold. <laughs> yes. Amen to that. Thank you once again for your time. We really appreciate it, and we will do it again soon. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. You too. That is Carolyn Cameron of Sportsnet, of course. And, yes, you see her hosting hockey, so we did want to get there. But I told you, Jamie, I had so many so many questions yeah. about this. And, and while it's really easy, as I said to her during this interview, to focus on the Canadians, and so we should. We're very proud of our our athletes, regardless of what sport we're talking about here. Oh, yeah, Novak Djokovic doing something we've never seen in our lifetimes looms in the background. Well, and not only that, but as, as Carolyn pointed out there, you know, it's kind of remarkable that he has a chance to, one, do the calendar slam, which we haven't seen in our lifetimes, but also that win would put him, it would it would help him set the career mark, right? Would pull him ahead of Nadal and Federer. That could happen at the same tournament. That's really remarkable when you think about it. Having the chance to you know, cinch both of those accomplishments at the same Grand Slam tournament, it's crazy. And that's what might make it a slam dunk for greatest player of all time on the men's side because there will be some who say, well, Federer and Nadal, they weren't there and he he got to benefit 
through injury to go get this one. And we've had this conversation before. Like, how many does he have to distance himself by where it's unequivocal, the way that Brady just eventually distanced himself from the conversation of greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL? Well, the volume was uh, of accomplishment was just so large, it was really difficult to argue against Brady, and so people just accept that as fact for the most part now. But if he does it by getting the calendar slam, which we've never seen, it's got a little more juice to it, even though he's only one past the other two. Well, and it, it has, you know, then the argument isn't just volume. It's that, okay, he has the volume, and he also has this incredible singular accomplishment that the other two don't have, right? It, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, if Tom Brady also held the single-season touchdown record still, which I know he did briefly until it was broken by Peyton Manning, right? It, it's a similar thing, and that's not as hallowed an accomplishment because somebody has to hold it, but it, it's a similar thing, right? Okay, yeah, there's the longevity, and you racked up all these – victories over a long period of time, but you also had that incredible peak that no one else equaled either. I'm just hoping it's Felix who gets to be on that stage. Djokovic is on the tougher side of the draw. He's still the favorite, as Carolyn talked about, but he's got to play Berrettini. He has to, after that, if things go to form on his side of the draw, he's got Zverev waiting in yep. the semifinal. Like, it's no slam dunk, even though he's going to be a favorite in each of those. OJ Elliott seems on the better side of the draw here. He really is. He won't see Djokovic, Zverev till the final. Medvedev's on his side. Medvedev is playing and winning in the first set right now. There's far more to talk about than just Canadian tennis. We saw something on the weekend that felt a lot different, and you can tell things have changed, and I'll play the comment that tells you how things have changed. We'll do that next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. You like some new rock? Well, you can stay plugged in with the new rock playlist on Apple Music. This is a song that is featured there. It's always being updated with the best new bands, brand new rock. You can add tracks right to your library for offline listening. Listen to the new rock playlist on Apple Music. Nothing done as of yet. We'll wait and see if it materializes today. A report out there, Jamie, just in the last few minutes from someone who covers the Vancouver Canucks very closely, Patrick Johnson saying, don't be surprised if the Quinn Hughes deal turns out to be a little north of $8 million bucks. You can probably figure out what that means for term. I mean, the main comp is obvious. Yeah, that's from Patrick Johnston, of course, reporting that. And, you know, he's not saying that a deal is imminent or anything, just giving us a little, a little scoop about what the parameters of a deal could look like. And, of course, the obvious, you know, he says the comp is obvious. What I take that to mean, I think you take that to mean as well, would be Mira Heiskanen, who signed eight years for 8.45 with Dallas, right, after his ELC. So, you know, uh, they're different players. Obviously, I think Mira Heiskanen is regarded as a much more sound defender in his own zone right now than Quinn Hughes is. But, you know, young, high upside defenders going long term suggest that we might be looking at something at least similar to the Mira Heiskanen deal. Yeah, you would think that Kale McCarr deal set the benchmark for a six-year contract. And if Hughes was looking at that type of term, you knew it was going to be less than that. Obviously, the annual average value that you just laid out is is less than that. He's not going to get the Kale McCarr deal, and maybe he doesn't quite get the Miro Haskinen deal, but in that ballpark feels like if they're going eight years, it's going to be something like that. Maybe it's seven. I have no idea. We will wait and see. Maybe it is six. Maybe it's discounted a little bit, Jamie, from the Kale McCarr deal, and Quinn Hughes protects some unrestricted free agency years. 
yeah, if it's, you know, 8.1 times 6, 8.1 times 7, or 8.3 times 7, something like that, we could see as well. But those are kind of the two deals that you're trying to work within, right? Okay, you adjust from, you know, whatever you think about Hughes as a player, you kind of adjust based on that. Looking at the McCarr deal, looking at the Heiskanen deal, if you think, you know, what what exactly does a little north of $8 million mean? How, how high can you go and have it still be a little bit of north? And maybe you try to figure something out then. Jamie, I want to get to Canadian soccer here in just one second. You and I talked about it a bunch last week, and we talked about how we felt on Friday after it felt like a couple of points got away against Honduras, not an abject failure. It was just Canada put the point in disappointing. It didn't feel like that this weekend in Nashville. Just before we get there, though, did you see the wild scene between Brazil and Argentina on the weekend? That was nuts. That was nuts. We're talking about two global powers in the sport and the expectation of those nations let alone the soccer world, for those two teams meeting at any point in time in a game that means anything. And seven minutes into the match, they have to cancel it because of COVID (laughs) concerns, because Argentinian (laughs) players lied to get into the country and they're Premier League players. They're not even supposed to be there. And they have to shut that thing down right then and there. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, the wackiness of CONCACAF, but let's just, you know, take a moment to to recognize the true kings of wacky international soccer in South America, because that was just an unreal scene between two powerhouses. I mean, two of the best sides in the world, and it's canceled, as you said, before the 10th minute. It, uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and it turns out that forms weren't filled out by Argentinian players on the way into the country. They're not supposed to be coming from the Premier League. The players in particular, there were four of them. Three of them were starting for Argentina. And you watch the scene <laughs> You watch the scene on the field, and you can't quite understand what's happening. But the video that emerged, you're going, well, what's going on here? And the players obviously don't know. And then there's arguing with the officials. And the next thing you know, are those guys going to be allowed to leave the country? Turns out they did board the flight, and they headed back to Argentina. Are they going to be allowed to go back to England? I don't know. I don't even know where we stand this morning. Yeah, it's... Um... It's an incredible situation, really. And you're right. The videos coming out of it, you're you're just scratching your head thinking, what on earth is happening down there? Now, I don't know if everybody paid attention to that. And I'm not sure, based on your Labor Day weekend and all the sports you had on tap, how many of you bookmarked Canada, USA. I certainly did. I know you did it on the weekend as well. And boy, does this draw feel a lot better than the last one. Canada goes into Nashville, picks up an important point against the U.S. And Jamie, as you alluded to in the first hour of the program, two completely different narratives coming out what turned out to be a 1-1 draw. Well, and it really speaks to, I mean, one, obviously the quality of the opponents they are playing, right, in their first two matches with Honduras in the first one and then the U.S., who we expect, and that expectation might be changing a little bit, but going into this stage, we expected the U.S. to be a lock for the top two in the qualification process, but it also speaks so much to the difference between playing at home and playing away, right? And really at home against any side that isn't Mexico or the U.S., you're hoping to pick up three points. When you go on the road in CONCACAF, Against basically any opponent, a draw is a good result. That's especially true against the United States. Now, there are some preaching patients. Don't worry about this. It's early in the qualification process. I'm talking from an American point of view. Don't worry. This team's fine. It'll be okay. Don't read too much into one result. But there are a bunch of other people coming out of that match saying, what's going on here? I don't think this U.S. side's good enough. The tactics that they employed and the plan leading up to this – This is what they get. This isn't going to work out. You thought you were disappointed last time around. It's going to be the same thing for this young squad. 
Yeah, there is a ton of disappointment and skepticism right now about this American team. And really, I mean, you know, they, they're they in a, a kind of a similar position in Canada where they have this young attacking talent that they're really excited about. But, you know, one of those players, Weston McKinney, I mean, he's been temporarily, at least for, for the next match they're playing against Honduras, he's been sent back to his club side in Italy with Juventus because he breached... COVID-19 protocols, right? They've lost other guys to injury as well going in to that Honduras game. So the results have been poor. And then, you know, with a player breaching protocol and being dismissed from the squad temporarily, like it just doesn't seem like things are clicking for the U.S. right now. And I mean, it's great news from a Canadian perspective. Because as we said, you know, going into this qualification process, Scotty, what did everyone say? Well, you can lock up Mexico and the U.S. for the first two spots, or at least for two of the top three spots in the group, which are guaranteed, uh, you know, qualifications, qualification in the World Cup. You can just lock those two countries in. Mexico's held up its end of the bargain so far, but the U.S. very much has not. And yes, there's a long way to go. They still have a ton of games to play. But all of a sudden, you can start to think, okay, well, maybe they're not as much of a lock as we thought. Maybe Canada can actually finish ahead of the U.S., or at least they can hope to finish ahead of the U.S. in a way they weren't expecting to going into it. For the second consecutive game, Canada falls down a goal. And for the second consecutive game, Kyle Lahren provides the equalizer. What a setup from Alfonso Davies, yeah. who was the best player on the park. I don't want to hear about possession numbers. There was nobody better in that match. I know he left due to a little bit of injury or fatigue. We're not quite sure exactly why Alfonso Davies ultimately left the match. He was the best player out there. And it really just shows you, you know, what a leg up having, look, I don't want to crown him the best player in CONCACAF right now or anything like that, but certainly having one of the best players in CONCACAF, what it does for your team, right? Because you're right, the possession can be completely tilted, but if you have a guy specifically like Alfonso Davies, who's so dangerous with his pace and his creativity on the counterattack, you can absorb that possession. And they were still able to generate some really quality scoring chances because they have that attacking talent on the flanks. You know, Tejon Buchanan was effective as well, but really it comes down to Alfonso Davies. He sets up the goal, and you just feel right now like in any environment they go into, if Alfonso Davies is fit and playing well, they have a chance to score. Like they have a chance to get a result if Alfonso Davies is playing like that out there. And they've, they've never had that player before, right? Where almost single-handedly you feel, and there's a lot of other good players on the team, I get that, but single-handedly you feel like he can salvage a result for you. From a fan standpoint, it has taken a while for us to get our heads wrapped around this. Oh, this team can score. We don't have to hope to go on the road eke out a nil-nil draw because there's no attacking talent. This team is built differently. Fans have finally come around to that. Sounds like the players have been there for quite some time. Have a listen to Kyle Lair and the goal score. He's got two now in as many competitions in this round of qualifying. Have a listen to what he had to say after this draw. I mean, we were in the USA and it's a derby game and, and, and it's more special when we're playing these guys. And, and in the past uh, we would have lost games like this and, and now we're you see, we're, we can fight back and win games because we have the quality, we have the spirit, we're a team. And then we're, brother, we're brothers there uh, on the pitch and off the pitch, so um, it's good. And then we see we can win these games too, and, and, and in the end we had chances. So we will keep fighting until the end, and, and we're going to solve our game, and we get three points there. In the past, we would have lost games like this. He is 100% correct, yep. Jamie. But these players, they have a belief, and you can hear it to a man when they speak. 
Yeah, you're right. Going down on the road to the U.S., that would have been a done deal, really, for so long in this program's history. And it just wasn't the case and didn't really feel like that was the case either. Even when they went down 1-0, you're right. It's taken a lot of us fans a little bit of time to kind of shake off that inherent skepticism we have. But it's great to hear from the players that they don't have that skepticism anymore. They have that belief. And even at the end, yeah, we're going to go get three points against El Salvador, right? Okay, I love to hear it. Now, you got to deliver. you got to turn in a better performance than you did against Honduras at home to kick things off. But I love to hear that confidence and that belief. Yeah, there's a long way to go in this qualification process. We can't lose sight of that because they're going to play this game tomorrow. It's been fast and furious here with three games in seven days once they have that game culminate tomorrow night. There's a little pressure for that one. It's the second home game. Got to start getting some wins. Panama's off to a nice start here. There are a lot of games to go, still 12 matches for each of these nations. But there's a little pressure heading into that one tomorrow night, isn't there? It's going to feel like a disappointment if they don't find three points, right? Because you just look at it in total. Okay, five points in the first three games, you feel really good about. Three points in the first three games, or, you know, heaven forbid, two, if they actually drop all three to El Salvador at home, that's going to feel like you've dug yourselves a hole, right? That you've missed an opportunity with two home games not to capitalize, you know? They only get seven home games in this process, right? So you've already missed one opportunity against Honduras, and I, I get it. Honduras is a really quality side, and it was the first match of qualification. There's some nerves there. I understand that. But you got to make these opportunities at home in Canada count. This is one of the prime opportunities to pick up three points on the schedule. They really have to convert it. Like Canada, El Salvador draws in each of its first two matches. Unlike Canada, El Salvador yet to score. Haven't conceded, but also yep. have yet to score a goal. Maybe that bodes well for Canada, and maybe they learned something from the tactics and the style of game that Honduras employed last week. More on that tomorrow. Let's get to what they're saying. Get a couple of hockey clips in here. There's been a shift today. We've been talking about the momentum of women's sports over the last month or so. Christine Sinclair, front and center, gold medal win. It wasn't just about celebrating that. It was calling out the powers that be to get a domestic league going, or at the very least some domestic professional teams that could play in an international format in the NWSL here in Canada. We'll see if that comes to light. We've talked a long time, Jamie, about women's hockey and the two paths that are being chosen over the last couple of years. There's what the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association have done and said, listen, the best players on the planet feel like what we're doing right now isn't sustainable, so we're going to sit this out. We're going to do the Dream Gap Tour, raise awareness in the hopes of putting pressure on a more sustainable and viable format moving forward. And on the other side, you've had the NWHL that says, we believe we've got that and we don't need the NHL to be buddy-buddy, partner-partner with us on this. Yeah, it's and it's been... Um... Kind of a not, I don't want to say under the radar because it's a major storyline, but it's kind of underlies everything else we're seeing in women's hockey right now is that divide and that question about what the future is going to hold. Women's hockey's back in the conversation today because the NWHL has rebranded, is no longer known as the NWHL. In fact, it's known as the PHF, the Professional Hockey Federation. You'll notice there's a word that's not in there. That word is women. Here's the commissioner of the league. Tyler Tamania on the decision to remove that word from the league title. It looks different under the hood, this league, you know, since it first started in 2015. So if the topic was first broached, right when you get to that seven-year itch mark anyway, right, um, you kind of just say, hey, look, we need to kind of mirror what's going on internally, externally. So 
we were talking about the name and we were all sitting around and I said, you know, why do we have to keep putting the W in there? You know, these are phenomenal athletes, right? They're not like female phenomenal or, you know, the NHL is, is not, you know, the national men's hockey league, right? So let's kind of be provocative here and take it out. Like there's no one size fits all approach for any human. So, you know, whether that be gender or identified gender or sexual orientation, like everyone is really a unique individual. And we think it's just getting to the point where we just don't need to put people in boxes anymore, right? That whole no labels, no limits. So the new logo, while it presents like, you know, homage to the NWHL and, you know, we took uh, the stars and the, and the color aspect of it. It's really a true refresh of the brand. And it comes around this idea of redefining the league based on the skill and talent of our players in a way that's gender neutral. The way we construct our rosters look different, right? I've got some athletes that define themselves as women or some athletes that are non-binary. And so as we embark on the next couple of years, socially, I just felt it was the right time to do this now. And, and you know, social change often happens first in women's league, let's be honest. So it just felt like it was the right time. It's true to what they want to be, and her argument there is well made. Now, from a marketing perspective, the fear here, Jamie, is that Professional Hockey Federation is very nondescriptive, and yeah. it gets lost in the shuffle of all the leagues that happen to exist out there. Yeah, her argument is very compelling, right? And I think that, Scotty, you know, probably even as people like us who talk about sports professionally, you know, we've tried to adjust the way we talk about the athletes, right? Like, now we understand... Okay, we're not going to say Christine Sinclair is, you know, a great women's soccer player. She's just a great soccer player, right? And that's that's an adjustment that we've seen, you know, across media or, or we've ho hopefully are seeing across media and how these sports are talked about. And I think that's part of what they're trying to reflect. So I understand it from that perspective. It makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, I also sense a lot of skepticism from fans of the league, the Premier Hockey Federation now, from people who cover the league. First of all, just a little bit of surprise that it happened now. And then second of all, as I said, skepticism. Is this really the best way to go? Why is it happening now? Is this going to be indicative of more changes coming down the road? Or is it just a rebrand? Re so I understand the reasoning, as the commissioner laid out there. But I think there's still some questions they're going to have to answer. I'm not trying to say these are on the same level whatsoever, but we're going to segue into another clip here from a former NHLer who participated in a league that participated in a league that not many people know a whole lot about, Jamie. And I was having a conversation with somebody on the weekend, the Danbury Trashers. They are the focus for a lot of people who consume Netflix right now because, as you and I alluded to last week, it was a, a team purchased by a guy who... Eh, Legally, had some issues, <laughs> perhaps some ties to the mob, maybe never been proven but rumored, all of these different things. Jimmy Galanti bought his son a hockey team. This happened, and it's an incredible story that's playing out on Netflix right now. I'm not sure how many of you have consumed part or all of it, but it looks really compelling. I started it, Jamie, and because of the live sports that were going on this weekend, I actually haven't had a chance to finish it. I'm hoping to do that at some point this week. But when I was talking to somebody about it on the weekend – they said, oh, yeah, I sort of heard about that. What league was that? And I said, the UHL. UHL, what, yeah. what's that? And and that's sort of the fear here on the other side of, look, you may be doing the PHF for all the right reasons. And as you said, it's a compelling case that the commissioner just laid out. But people don't know what the UHL was, for example. Are they going to have no idea and just brush by the PHF? 
Exactly. And you have such a, you know, okay, I again, I totally understand the argument for taking women's out of the name, but it's also such a strong brand and it tells people who you are right away, right? And people understand immediately what's going on in a way that they don't with the Premier Hockey Federation. And maybe it just comes down to, okay, the, the idea was right, but the execution was wrong because Premier Hockey Federation sounds so generic, right? Could they have come up with a name that still removed the reference to women, but had a little bit more pop and was a little bit more distinctive maybe that was the right way to go and something they should have tried to figure out so i did mention the doc that's out there right now the telling of the tale of the danbury trashers those who have seen it can't stop talking about it i know i'm going to be consuming the rest of it this week mike rupp lived it during the lockout mike rupp yes the guy who scored the cup winning goal for the new jersey devils he went and played for this hockey team he was on the fan 590 might be on this station here pretty soon but he's on fan 590 this morning and had this to say about how he ended up in danbury you know i was uh uh, a third, fourth line role playing player that um, you know I had. I, I was uh, that was one of my proudest moments uh, careers. I, I had a few good uh, big games, like in Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals, and and those things. But I was never a goal scorer, right? I was never a point getter. And <laughs> I'm watching this documentary, and uh, I start seeing them say, uh, "We need a bleep in goal score." And I'm all of a sudden thinking to myself, who are they talking about? I don't remember this part. <laughs> and then they put my face on the screen. I'm like, oh, they're talking about me. And it yeah. just goes to the point, like, A.J. loved the game of hockey. A.J. played it, and I talked to him about that before, too, when he had that injury in high school. And that was, like, his love. That was his outlet. Everybody has their outlet, right? And that was his. And so, but the, it's just funny how it comes together. Like, the last NHL game he saw, live in person was game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals, Devils, Ducks. And that was when I had three points in that in, in that game seven. So in his mind, when he's thinking, I need a goal score, I'm the guy that comes to mind. You know what I mean? And it's hilarious because then that's how he sought out after um, trying to get me. I thought it was like a really random and all these weird – things come into play in that and so you know I, I don't know I think that was part of it is like I saw this kid's desire and you know you, you you saw this level of hockey and there's times where we had to sit there and be like hey we can't fight right now like we we got to actually win this game and uh you know we had a good group of guys and well, a super tough team but man there's some good players too Jamie there is a great topic. That's an excellent story from Mike Rupp, and it was yeah, a good. Yeah, it's really good. There was some other stuff in there that that I enjoyed, and hopefully we can get Mike on the station this week or perhaps next week. If there were players, we can we take this for a topic a different day. If you had just seen one game, like a high profile game, <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily indicative of that player's career, but it gave you a completely different impression. Like who are some of those players? throughout the, the history of sports. We can get to that a different day because we've got to make room for the baseball story. We talked about the crazy sports weekend. This was just a part of it. John Morosi joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. And 98 is skied back into deep center. Verdugo to the wall. It's going to be over his head and off the wall as he was looking into that glove for the ball. Now trouble picking it up by Iglesias. And Meadows is going to try to score. And around the bases he goes. Inside the park. And this game is tied. <laughs> I mean, what is going on here? I'm sure our Red Sox fans who are listening are real thrilled to hear that. 
<laughs> Real thrilled to hear that with the comeback win by the Tampa Bay Rays yesterday. They were down six runs in this game. They had a little league grand slam in this game, Jamie, when there was more confusion and bloopers in the outfield that resulted in a bases-clearing four-run job that never should have been at the major league level but helped them come back from six runs down. And that's the tying run, an inside-the-park home run in the top of nine to force extra innings. Ultimately, Tampa prevails 11-9. to nine. I love the music choice there by uh, by operator Greg Valak coming into a little yakety sax because that's what the Red Sox were doing in the field yesterday. And, oh, man, what a pleasure. What a pleasure it was to watch that. Oh, you just love to see it. You At love least to if see you're it. a Blue Jays fan, you love to see it. And maybe if you're a Yankees fan because you don't like the Red Sox, or if you're a fan of anyone else, really, how are you cheering for the Boston Red Sox? I know there are some pretty ardent Red Sox listeners out there, they're still back in their team. They're still hopeful. But, Jamie, the race got so much more fun this weekend. The Mariners lost yesterday, but they had won five straight prior to that. The Blue Jays are on a five-game run right now that included a sweep of the Oakland Athletics, yep. winning the first game in dominant fashion yesterday against the New York Yankees. Those two, those two teams go head-to-head a game again today. We were talking last week. Okay, so... The Jays will basically have to make up a game a week if they want to grab one of the wild card spots. And I know it's early, but they made up two in the last few days. Yeah, and the you know sweeping Oakland was huge, right? To to be able to leapfrog the A's in the standings, they're slightly ahead of the Mariners. They you know they're both technically three games back, but the Jays have a just a barely barely better winning percentage, so they're ahead of them in the standings. But yeah, they're all of a sudden they're only three games back of the Red Sox, and I think the really interesting thing is. You know, for a while there, they were really just focused on the second wild card. That was the only one you felt like they were going to have a chance to get. But, I mean, the Yankees are only a half game up on the Red Sox themselves. And the Jays have three more games against the Yankees in this series here, right? After already winning the first one. So, all of a sudden, really, there's two spots up for grabs in the AL wild card race. The Jays, you know, they still got a lot of work to do. But three games back with this many games left is very doable all of a sudden. Well, last week is probably the perfect reminder that you can't overreact to one game. That loss to the Orioles felt so disheartening. Yep. The offense for the Jays was in the tank. So don't overreact too much to one win against the Yankees. It wasn't long ago that you looked at the schedule and went, oh, man, they got to play seven games against the Yankees still. And they've still got six of those to go. Boy, well, John Morosi joins us now, Major League Baseball Network, NHL Network as well. And, Jamie, perhaps a better question for him after we welcome him. John, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Scott and Jamie, I'm outstanding. I actually just called today to, to send along my congratulations to the Canadians on their uh, Women's Hockey World Championship gold medal, the gold medal in the Olympic soccer tournament, and then that very impressive <laughs> draw over the weekend in Nashville. I'll tell you what, Alfonso Davis, and I know he's one of your own. What an incredible player. That was that was a, quite a display from him there on Sunday evening. Yeah, there's no question. You could talk about tactics or the result, all that. There's no questioning who the best player on the park was, though, is there? Goodness gracious. I mean, that, that run that he made, the U.S. had no answer for him. And, and what, I, what stands out to me the most, I was, I was thinking about this last night and making the analogy, it'd be like if, if Quinn Hughes was playing center for the U.S. Olympic hockey team and he was playing a different position than he plays for his club and is still the best player on the ice. And that's basically what Alfonso Davies is doing. He's a left back at Bayern. And then to see him going forward as a wing and, and obviously on Canada's goal, he made the play. Um, the, the U.S. and, and Serginho Dessis couldn't, couldn't keep up with him. And uh, just, I love his game, love his whole story. 
uh, everything he's done to represent Canada and, and global soccer. I just I have huge admiration for him. So that was you guys know I live close to the border and certainly uh, you know proud of uh, proud of the U.S. men's soccer team over the years. But certainly uh, that was a deserved draw by Canada, and I was just, I would love watching Alfonso Davies play. He's a tremendous player and great person. Well, because of that and because of the offer sheet that we never see and one finally got realized in the National Hockey League and because of everything else that was going on this weekend, we're an hour and a half into our program and we're finally getting to baseball, which was just incredible sure. over the course of the weekend. And this is the question I wanted to pose to you that I didn't actually throw it there to Jamie. Is there any team that runs hotter and perhaps colder this year in the majors than the New York Yankees? Wow. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been, uh, at times, to your point, and I think that was a, a, a key aspect of why the Jays went forward in the deadline. They felt like the Yankees were vulnerable. And then they go off and reel off all those wins in August, even though they had a, a bit of a COVID outbreak in their, in their roster. And now it looks like the Jays are, have a chance to, to take a series there in the Bronx, which would be tremendous. And there, there's a lot to like about, uh, I, I think, about the Yankees. On, on paper, look pretty good. And obviously, they've got Corey Kluber back. Uh, Garrett, Garrett Cole has certainly looked, looked like a Cy Young candidate at different times during the course of the year, and Judge and Stanton have both been pretty solid. But there's also some inconsistency, and that's why I think the, 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 the door is open for Toronto, for even Seattle, to, to come in there and get a wild card. And who knows what happens with, with the Red Sox in, in the weeks to come as well. But I really thought as of last week that the door was almost closed on the Jays, uh, having a chance to make the playoffs. But they've played great over the last week. Of course, five straight wins. And you, you start to look at the, at the schedule, and, and, and you can really talk yourself into believing in the Jays right now. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting AL wildcard picture. And I, I think it's, it's crystallized for me that Tampa's the best team in the division, but the Yankees, uh, the Jays, the Red Sox all have cases right now. It's going to be a thrilling final month of the season. John, and I want to dive into the Jays here in just a second, but while we're talking about the Yankees, I find them really fascinating as well. And I know for a lot of their fans, they have been very, very frustrated this season with how reliant they are on the home run and how vulnerable they are to the strikeout. And I mean, they go out and they add Joey Gallo at the trade deadline and he plays right into both of those things. Does that style from the Yankees make them more vulnerable to these, you know, incredible hot streaks when it's all clicking and the ball is flying out of there, but also to these really tough cold streaks? Yeah, it's a very good point. And I think that they are, a, they can be an all or nothing type of a team at different times. And that's where, honestly, in the past, uh, and D.J. LeMay, who hasn't had his, his normal great year, he's usually a very, very consistent player, and he just hasn't been up to his normal MVP candidate standard this year. And that's hurt them because D.J. is the guy that when he is really going, the ball's always in play. He is the catalyst. And they've been missing that presence a little bit this year. So I think it's a very good observation on your part. And it also it speaks to what's different about what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs. I think the Yankees are more of a regular season team because when they run up against really good pitching, whether it's with Tampa or maybe Houston, who pitches better than people really realize, or if the White Sox are at full strength, the Yankees, I think, will have a hard time getting through and winning the American League this year. I just don't think that they can beat you in enough ways. The teams that I really like to watch play in the postseason, certainly like the Dodgers last year, are teams that can attack you with the long ball, but also with Mookie Betts. And how many of Mookie's big plays last October were base running plays or, or staying out of a double play, really good uh, plays on the bases and great decisions. And honestly, it's why we're here in Cooperstown rocking Derek Jeter is it wasn't necessarily always the gaudiest numbers, but he made the right plays at the right times. 
And I think that's the kind of player the Yankees have in normal times with, with a DJ LeMahieu, but they don't have nine of them. And I think that that's what makes them a little susceptible to quality pitching, which is exactly what they're going to see in the month of October if they get there. So back to the subject of the Jays. And you mentioned you're a little surprised to see them back in the race. I know I, as a Jays fan, am certainly a little surprised to see them back in the race. Three games back of the Red Sox now for that second wild card spot. They've got work to do. Can they continue the push even if George Springer is on the shelf for a little bit, though? Yeah, it, it's a, a great question. Sounds like George will be a day-to-day type player uh, right now with this injury, and, and maybe that means the Gritchuk and Dickerson playing center field, which is obviously not what they – had in mind uh, when they designed this club, but it is good to have Dickerson there for depth. Um, it's a great point, and I, I guess I would say this. They will go right now as far as Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Marcus Semyon can take them, if, if in fact, George is going to be out for a while. Now, they have some supplemental offense. Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel has been very good of late. Alejandro Kirk is really good as a DH or a backup catcher, and, and now having a 28-man roster allows you to use Kirk in a more aggressive way because you're not worried about losing your backup catcher. So I, I think there's, there's a lot to like there about this team, but I, I think it really does, does, does double down on the emphasis and the importance of, of both uh, Guerrero and Semyon. Semyon's has been so great. And, and I, I wonder, obviously, the, the Jays' chances of keeping him long-term. He's played so brilliantly. He could have a, a 40. I was, on the, I was on the air this morning with the Fan 590, our, our colleagues in Toronto, and Scott MacArthur made the point that he could have a 40, 40 homer, 40 double season. I mean, that's you, you just don't see that. I mean, that, that's an ex- incredible performance for Marcus all year long. First-class person, first-class player, great defensive player who's worked his way into becoming that gold glove type infielder. Just tremendous player on and off the field for the Jays. And I, I, I love watching Marcus Simeon play as well. So uh, they're going to have to lean on Vladdy and lean on Marcus. And if, if they keep playing the way they played last week, then really the potential is there for the Jays to find a way to make it into the playoffs. John Morosi of the MLB Network joining us here this morning on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. A follow-up on Marcus Simeon, because when he was signed in the offseason, one year, $18 million, there were people that said, hey, if he goes back to that MVP-type form where he had MVP consideration two years ago, this could be a steal. $18 million is not exactly chump change. However, what do you think this season would be worth if you just took it in a vacuum and had to pay him for the production this year? Wow. I mean, that's, that's a great point. Well, and, and, and you would look around and, and compare him to the other shortstops who are free agents. Now, I realize he's not playing shortstop this year, but you look at him and his defensive profile, He, I still think of him as a shortstop. And when you do that and you put that production at the shortstop position, he's right there with Correa in terms of numbers. Now, He's not going to get a deal as long as Carlos because he's older, but I would sign him right now ahead of Trevor Story for sure. And and you look at it, the interesting thing, too, is going to be how he compares himself to Francisco Lindor and says, wait a minute, here's what Lindor got. What am I going to get? And and look at – obviously there's been no comparison in the 2021 numbers between Semi and, and, and Lindor. I mean, for me, he is he is a, a – I think Marcus Semyon is a $20 million a year player clearly, based on what he's making this year and how productive he's been. And then you just say, how long will you take that over? Is it a five-year deal? Is it a six-year deal? Uh, I do believe that Marcus Simeon's next contract will be a nine-figure deal. I think he is a $100 million-plus player, and uh, he has played tremendously well this year for the Blue Jays, and I think he's earned that, he's earned that multi-year deal. You look at how, how well he takes care of his body, how dependable he's been, I, I just I'm a big fan of his, and I think the industry thinks of him in the same way. 
and I would give him a, a nine-figure deal before I would give that same deal to uh, to Trevor Story and maybe even a Corey Seager. I, I think he's got a chance to surpass Seager's deal in overall numbers because uh, he's been a little bit more dependable and reliable certainly over the last year than Corey Seager has been. All right. The Jays have this it factor about that young nucleus, and that's part of the reason that I think most people around baseball who don't have a rooting interest would like to see them in the postseason because they're fun and they're young. And we can see through the numbers over the year, hey, the run differential, everyone, if they can just get a little bullpen help, these guys are going to get in. The Seattle Mariners are the opposite story. The Seattle Mariners are right. mi- minus 55 in run differential, and there they are. They're only three games back of the wild card as well. What is the it factor you associate with the Seattle Mariners, a team that nobody had in this position at the beginning of the year? Well, you're absolutely right, and I, I think that they've, they've done a couple of things. Number one, they've hit for power at the right times. Kyle Seeger, Mitch Hanniger has been good from a power standpoint. Ty France, really good player that, that isn't talked about enough. Abraham Toro came over about a month ago. He's been really good for them. Uh, so I, I think it's been power, power at the right times. You can win, you know, even when you are when you are in a situation where you're not really outscoring on aggregate, of course, and to your point, a negative run differential, but you can win games when you have timely power and a good bullpen. And, and for a while it was Kendall Graven. They trade Graven over to Houston, but they've had Paul Seawall has been good for them. They've, they've had enough consistency in the bullpen to win the winnable games. And, and their rotation has really, I think, improved a lot. Marco Gonzalez has been better of late. Uh, Chris Flexen has come over and pitched pretty well. Uh, they've had Logan Gilbert come up and pitch well. It's a team that, you're right, the, the numbers don't all line up, but Scott Service has done a very good job managing them. The bullpen has, has really, I think, achieved at a pretty good level all season long, and, and the emergence of some key power threats, Haniger, uh, France, Toro, Seeger, it's worked for them. So I, I really I give the, the Mariners a lot of credit, and, and I, I think, it's, to your point, it's really poignant that when you look at it, of course, the, the two favorite teams of Vancouver, the Blue Jays and the Mariners, they've arrived at this spot to do drastically different, for, different, different paths, and yet they have almost the same exact record. So I hope all, all the great fans in the lower mainland enjoy it, whoever they're rooting for, because it's going to be a pretty interesting conclusion here the next several weeks. Maybe there's a few Oakland A's fans out there that are disappointed of late. Just six wins since August the 14th and obviously got just swept by the Toronto Blue Jays. Do you see enough to think there's a push left in this roster? You know, great point about how they've played of late. I, I, I don't see it. I really don't. I think that when you're at this stage and you kind of go into a swoon late in the season uh, and you see other teams passing you by in the wild card standing, it's tough to reverse that momentum. Um, so I would say that ultimately I expect the A's to, to not make the playoffs, that it's often the hot team that wins late. And I, just, I don't think they have enough momentum going back on their side. You know, Chapman's had kind of a down year for them. Olsen's been really good. Um, their rotation, you know, again, they haven't been the same team since Bassett was injured, and he really has been a, a key guy for them. I think he was a very underappreciated all-star this year. And you look at how they have played, I think that they're, they're – Diminishment in performance really is lined up with when was with when Chris was injured, unfortunately. So I, I think it's a, it's a good observation on your part. I don't expect them to come back, and and that's where you look at that second wild card spot. And maybe it ends up being where you've got both spots up for grabs, and and the Yankees and Red Sox feel the pressure from the Blue Jays and Mariners. I, I do think it's going to be two of those four teams making it ultimately as the two AL wild card teams. 
Hey, John, I want to pop over to the NL West for a second. One of the most fascinating divisions in baseball for my money. And you've got, I think, the most fascinating division race playing out there in September sure. between, you know, a team that we all expected to be there, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and a team that has surprised pretty much everyone in the San Francisco Giants who are one game up on the Dodgers right now. They had a great series over the weekend, those two teams. Who do you give the edge to for claiming the regular season uh, NL West crown? So I've said before, the Dodgers are my team in that race, and, and I, I'm going to stick with them. I think they're getting better. They're getting healthier. Max Scherzer has come in and been a difference maker. Uh, and I really think when you look at the trade deadline and when you add Max Scherzer, a Cy Young winner, and Trey Turner, who might be an MVP as early as this year perhaps, uh, it, it changes your team. It changes everything. And so for me, the Dodgers, they just have so much talent. And, and when you're in a short sprint like this, I, I'm a believer in, in their talent winning out over, this, over the balance of the season. The Giants have put together a tremendous season, great team as well. Uh, Crawford's been tremendous. Posey's been tremendous. But I, I really think right now you've got to go Dodgers, uh, just having the, the better, more complete roster. And, and the way that Max Scherzer has pitched and is coming over is just extraordinary. Uh, he really is. Uh, he's, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you here from Main Street in Cooperstown. He's going to be a Hall of Famer one day. Max Scherzer is going to be in the Hall of Fame, and uh, he really has been someone who has made his credentials and his reputation on performing in the biggest moments. And, oh, by the way, a former MVP and signing winner himself and Clayton Kershaw, he's making his way back too. So I, I just think that the, the amount of talent on the Dodgers' side is going to win out in the end. The other really fascinating team in the NL West, of course, is the Padres. And I think, you know, at the beginning of the year, we all expected it to be the Padres and the Dodgers in this dogfight dog for the division title. Now the Padres well back in the division, but still holding down the second wildcard spot. But they got a bit of a fight on their hands. It's no sure thing that they'll be able to claim that second wildcard spot. You know, the Padres have been so aggressive about investing in their team and adding talent how disappointing would it be for them if they're not able to, you know, at least get into that one game wildcard playoff spot this year? Well, tremendously because you go out and you invest in, in Fernando Tatis Jr. And of course he's had an injury plagued season. You make the trade for you Darvish, you trade for Joe Musgrove, you trade for Blake Snell. Uh, you try to address your bullpen. This has been an all in type of a year for the Padres but I would say even their trade deadline was a little underwhelming. They thought they were going to get Joey Gallo. They didn't. They thought they were going to get Scherzer, and they didn't. So I, I do think it would be a, a profoundly disappointing year for the Padres if they missed the playoffs, especially when you consider how comfortable their lead was at one point in time. The Reds have played better to get back into this thing. And the one thing that you have to say is the Reds and Cardinals both have a much lighter schedule in September than the Padres do. The Padres have to face – what's been a very competitive division, you know, play a team like Colorado who's, who's very challenging to play at home. That's, that's a tough, tough schedule to play for the Padres at a time when they've been dealing with injuries. So I, I think that if, if they're able to still get in, they're a little bit dangerous, but they're not quite as complete of a club as I thought they were going to be based on the way their roster looked in spring training. So it, it's been a disappointing year, and it would be profoundly disappointing if they miss the playoffs entirely. John, you mentioned a couple of times that you're in Cooperstown for the induction ceremony tomorrow. Larry Walker goes in, of course. Whether it's a particular story or just a description of what he was as a player, if somebody asks you 30, 40 years from now about Larry Walker, what will you tell that person? I would say that it's never too late to choose your sport. He did not choose baseball until he was 16 years old. 
And so, you know, certainly all of us who are, who are parents of young uh, aspiring athletes or, or just kids who like to play, it's a worthwhile story for us all to remember that your 12U travel hockey or baseball team, should, we should not treat that like it's the, the choosing Olympic team here because there's a lot of teams to be picked. And, and Larry Walker told the story last week, in fact, that he, he missed making the, the Regina Pats. He wanted to try out and play for the Regina Pats, of course, was a close friend of Cam Neely growing up. He didn't make the Regina Pats, and he was going to still play. I think it was a junior A team in Swift Current, and he had one of his teammates' fathers take him to Swift Current to, to figure out his billet and, and get situated there. And he gets to the rink in Swift Current and says, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I want to try something else. And he gets invited to go play for the junior national team on a trial in Saskatchewan, makes the team, gets scouted, and he signs uh, as an undrafted free agent because, of course, back then Canada was not part of the draft. And that's how he begins his Hall of Fame career. And, and he's playing in Utica, which is 41 miles away from where I am right now. He didn't even really fully know the rules of, of baseball in terms of, you know, the intricacies and tag-up rules and different things you have to go through. He learned the game so late, but he's here in Cooperstown. And, and it's, just, it's a great lesson to be an athlete, be a good teammate, work hard, enjoy the game, immerse yourself in whatever sport you're playing right now. It doesn't even have to be the one that you ultimately play. And I have every confidence that growing up in Maple Ridge, B.C., that what he learned in hockey and playing with Cam Neely is part of the reason why he's a great baseball player. Athletes are athletes, and, and experiences are experiences. And, I, and I'm, I'm quite confident that the experiences that he had in Maple Ridge growing up are part of the reason why he was a great player and why all those tools that he had as a great toolsy baseball player, the five-tool player, why that came to be and came to bear on a baseball field. So he's a great story and a great reminder for all of us sports parents, let your kids have fun. And then eventually, if they want to pick their sport late, let them do that too, because uh, that's the reason why Larry Walker is a Hall of Famer today. Well, Larry Walker may not have uh, known the rules, but as many Canadian baseball fans will tell you, Larry Walker rules. John, have fun in Cooperstown. Thank you very much for your time today. Always appreciate it. Scott and Jamie, my pleasure, and uh, look forward to whatever we end up talking next time around, whether it's soccer, hockey, baseball. <laughs> Always love our conversations, and then thanks for all the great work that you do on the air. You as well. Thank you, John, with the MLB Network. Jamie, also with the NHL Network as well. He is he is well-versed. He's there to see Larry Walker going. We can talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But we got a jam-packed show, shoehorning things in all over the place. Eric Tulski, the Carolina Hurricanes assistant GM, he will join us at the bottom of the next hour. Former Canadian international, now a commentator. He's been calling the matches for Canada. Terry Dunfield joins us next right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.